the electrical grid cannot handle the demand for require, uh, required to charge EVs. Yeah. So there's a lot of assumptions there in that one. Yeah, so let's, let's try to give this some validity because uh, I don't want to just dismiss these comments. So it assumes it's making an assumption. Uh, let's say that everyone in the world, if we could snap our fingers, everyone, every car in the world, I think there's about a billion cars in the world, uh, were to be electric. And that all those cars, everyone goes home at 5.30 and plugs it into their DC fast charger. Uh, yeah, that's going to cause, obviously, a drain on an entire system and you're going to get blackouts. So would it be if everyone went home and turned on their electric dryer or their we range that, to cook dinner? We, we saw that in Air California. conditioning in the hot, you know, in the hot weather causing brownouts. So we just saw we that already in have California. demands yeah. on our system. Right? Yeah, we, we just saw that. It, it, that doesn't stop technology. So, so when air conditioning came out, and I think it was in the late 40s, 50s, when air conditioning, nobody talked about, um, oh, it's going to cause the grid to collapse. That, 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 never, that never happened. So, so first off, that scenario is unlikely. So it, it's going to be slow and gradual that we're going to more and more people will switch to, to EVs. So uh, we have to increase our total output. And we do, we're doing so at about 4% a year. So if you measure what the output was in 1960 to what it is now, uh, it's probably increased about 4% a year, right? So we're producing much more electricity to meet all those demands. And we're just finding new and innovative ways of doing that. Now, to, it has been estimated to that um, once we hit that, that um, 100% all electric vehicles, no gas on the road, um, that will probably mean an increase of about 30% of the total hour uh, um, energy output that we will need. Um, so at 4% a year, it's not going to take that long to hit the 30%. And that's probably uh, will exceed the actual growth of EVs. And then the, this, the, there's a second component to that as well, and this gets back into the battery storage. So it's often a case uh, that you... You can produce a lots of electricity at certain peak periods of time. Um, and what do you do with that excess electricity? Well, this is where the secondary battery storage comes in. And so that's going to even out the grid. So there's, there's, there's not, there won't be those uh, high demands placed on, um, by plugging in your, your EV overnight. That's going to collapse the system, right? Because if, if the energy if it's from renewables, if the sun's not shining or the wind's not blowing, it relies on the backup battery storage. And that's why, that's why batteries are not going to end up in landfills, right? Because we can use them, remanufacture them, and then every household could have a backup battery storage, which is very, very likely. It's already happening. We're already seeing that. Tesla's invested heavily into their, into their batteries, and other companies are starting to come up. Welcome to EV Friendly. This is the podcast for you if you're interested in engaging conversation about electric vehicles. We're switching things up a little bit this time. On this episode, I'll be your host. My name is Renee Young, and your regular host, Ken Hendricks, will be the guest. We're going to discuss some of the myths and misinformation that you'll often see on social media about electric vehicles. 
Ken is the Senior Advisor for the Automotive Retailers Association of BC, and he spearheaded the EV Friendly Program, which is a multifaceted program addressing the government of BC's mandate that by 2035, all new vehicle sales in British Columbia have to be zero emissions. So Ken, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Renee. <laughs> and uh, why don't we begin by getting you to tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, how the EV Friendly Program came to be. Sure thing. Um, well, I say I'm a third generation automotive industry uh, and a third generation uh, with the Automotive Retailers Association, which uh, sort of powers the EV Friendly Program. So my, uh, uh, my grandpa Myers, uh, came from Saskatchewan years ago as a mechanic and he ended up uh, opening up a couple Ford dealerships on the island uh, and then uh, my father Ed Hendricks uh, began working with him uh, and went through the Ford uh, and uh, he ended up becoming president of the ARA and then it, I guess it was just a natural progression family business just took over and uh, I became uh, an advisor in with the ARA. Um, and it was probably about five years ago that I began thinking about electric vehicles uh, and really at a time when I, I don't think anyone else really in the automotive aftermarket services industry and what I mean by that is sort of anything that happens to that vehicle after it's been after it's been sold it runs through a complete life cycle nobody was talking about it nobody was thinking about it and it wasn't even really much in in the press at that time but I sort of picked up on that and I thought this is going to be a transformative technology uh, and we need to be in the ground floor of this um, and if we're going to hit these environmental targets um, and it was sort of at that time that the government had come out with its uh, more aggressive at first it was 2040 which I thought was quite aggressive at that time and then they reduced it down to 2035 we're going to meet those targets um, they're going to have to start thinking more than just incentives on new vehicles they have to consider the whole life cycle of that vehicle and that's really the only way that we're going to build a consumer confidence we still uh, we still have a long ways to go um, BC has come out way ahead uh, of this whole EV space uh, we're leaders in all of North America um, not only just in uptake uh, but in the government support uh, and one of these programs which is the EV friendly program which is designed to educate I instill confidence in consumers. Yeah, and so the EV friendly program uh, addresses the government or assists the government in its mandate um, by recognizing that the industry needs to be trained uh, in order to be able to handle safely and efficiently uh, electric vehicles. And uh, so you, you've developed all these training programs that are online and uh, companies that do participate can become EV friendly certified. Yep. Uh, and you know, so this this is the uh, the missing link in the chain because at the time of the mandate, uh, they basically all they had was incentives for the purchase of the new vehicles, not even used. That's, That's right. changed now. It but has. you know, the, they hadn't given any thought to what happens. Okay, what if you're successful and a lot of people do buy electric vehicles? You know, who's going to look after them? And yeah, so that's what people, the program. And people have legitimate concerns that weren't being addressed. Um, they, this was new technology. They didn't understand it. Um, they couldn't, and still, I don't think a lot of people could really describe when they get into their electric vehicle um, that they know how it works. 
And I think we have a pretty good intuitive grasp on a gasoline-powered vehicle, an internal combustion engine. And I think if you ask anyone on the street, what makes your car go, um, they might be hesitant at first, but if you press them, yeah, I get in and I turn the ignition and spark plugs ignite some gas and it pushes a piston down and so on and so forth. They have a basic understanding of that. Uh, and anyone who's um, been driving long enough, you know what it means to break down on the side of the road and, hey, I ran out of gas, or you can tinker around your, your, with your car. It's just not so with electric vehicles. And so there was just a lot of concerns. Uh, are they safe was a concern. Uh, what happens to the battery? You know, are they environmentally friendly? Uh, are they cost effective? Uh, these were all legitimate concerns that we wanted to, to address. And the, the best way to do that was going to educate industry. Uh, industries had 100 years of fixing gas-powered vehicles. We've become very, very good at it. Um, but that doesn't, that infrastructure that we built over that 100-year period just does not instantly uh, transfer over to EVs. We have to begin building a new infrastructure with, with uh, new skill sets, new training. And that's all what the EV-friendly is designed to do. And so it, as a program, offers industry the tools and resources it needs. And that's from training uh, to the higher level business certification, which is called the EV friendly. And another facet of the program is, of course, in educating the consumer and addressing some of the common misconceptions that are out there and the misinformation that's out there. There's a lot, and there's a lot. Uh, of that. So, yeah. this series of podcasts is one example of how yeah. we've not only been you know, educating the industry, but there's been information for the consumers. However, you still have the skeptics out there, and mm -hmm. every time there's a news announcement or something that's uh, pro-EVs or about a new government uh, program or they want to invest in this or that to, to do uh, with EVs, there's always the naysayers that mm -hmm. proliferate on the uh, social media platforms and their comments. We've got a few of them here that we and, have picked and, up. And they're okay. It's, it's okay to be a skeptic. It's okay to, to question it. Um, and just not accept things blindly. Um, that's what we're here for, is to answer questions. We just want to do it uh, honestly and give the best information. We're not here to sell anyone an electric vehicle. We don't make EV, here at EV Friendly, we don't make EVs, we don't sell them, we don't service them. Um, we just help people with the transition. Right. So. Well, so some of the uh, Facebook comments that we've picked up on well, I'll okay. just read a few of them here. Some sure. of them are, you know, genuinely, you know, are genuine, legitimate concerns. Others are just right out there. And we get field. a lot of them on the EV friendly. <laughs> so yeah. you hear things like, "I'll never touch an EV as long as I live." LOL. Mm -hmm. They're plain and simply junk. Can we stop calling electric vehicles zero emissions and start calling them supreme polluters like they are? And then here's one about towing. Uh, yes, most tow, most tow trucks are diesel powered. Tow truck operators should charge double for handling dangerous electric vehicles that could erupt into flames if involved in a collision. One problem with EVs is when they erupt in flames, it won't go out until the battery is dead. Okay, that's the first. I had never heard of that. Gas or diesel vehicles can be put out with foam. Uh, no, false. Okay. <laughs> Uh, EV is the biggest con job on the hard-working families and that they're financially struggling. Mm -hmm. I cannot believe the government is pushing everyone to get in debt for this plastic junk. <laughs> uh, EVs are a scam 
on the weak-minded, and the only way it works is if there are way less people. Okay. Well, that's just a random sampling. So let's dive into some of the actual yeah. concerns. I've heard, I've heard that last comment. That's a, actually an interesting. Yeah, there's there's some common and, themes there. So we've captured false, what actually. we think are some of the most common yeah. misconceptions, uh, myths, yeah. or, or outright misinformation that's and, out and there. I, so those those were from our Facebook channels. A lot of them were actually yeah. yes. So yes, you can follow EV Friendly on uh, on uh, fa Facebook if you want to see more of those. <laughs> Facebook and YouTube. Yeah. Uh, and Instagram and Twitter, so we're on all the all the channels. So let's deal with some of these uh, okay. one by one. So the first one we have here is EVs are all part part of a government WEF conspiracy. Oh, I like that one. So WEF stands for World Economic Forum. Um, a conspiracy, hardly a conspiracy, when the agenda is made known. Um, so. Once a year, leaders from around the world meet with these forums. They discuss high-level concepts like the economy and the environment. Uh, most of it is out in the open. You could go to the website and read what they're talking about. Uh, there's some closed-door sessions and, and, and stuff. Uh, I know that the WEF, you, you hear about it in sort of the mainstream um, uh, media and dialogue, and there's a lot of skepticism. Uh, I think it's right to, to question um, what some of these institutions are doing, I don't. I think that's actually healthy, uh, but hardly a conspiracy. So, because it's known, and furthermore, um, these mandates that the governments have come out with have passed through a legislative process, right? It's been voted on. Uh, it's had the cooperation of not only legislator, uh, but of stakeholders, of manufacturers. Um, it'd be pretty tough to get all these people in a room and, hey, let's all coordinate this underhandedly. Uh, probably not likely. Now, you may not like the outcomes. You may not like the ideas that are being expressed, um, but it's hardly a conspiracy. It's all out in the open. Yeah, well, if you reverse engineer most conspiracy theories and, you know, try and establish, first of all, what is the mandate? What is, who stands to gain by doing this? And how would they get there? Like, you know, faking the moon landing, for example, and all the sure. thousands of people that would have been involved, and none of them would spoken up in more than 50 years you know yeah. anyway it, it yeah i agree with you on that one mm -hmm. here's another one evs are a fad just like other alternative fuels that have been in the past okay well that's um that's a fair that's a fair question it's not really a question it's more because yeah, natural a, gas a, never took off i mean they are in some commercial applications but at one time it was touted to be one of the uh, big it, answers for it, uh, it vehicle emissions. was in the 90s. Um, There's a lot of hope in around uh, propane and natural gas in, in the 90s. And in fact, the, uh, the ARA, the Automotive Retailer Association, actually had an entire division dedicated called the Alternative Fuels Division. And there was a lot of hope uh, in with that. I think uh, later on, uh, biofuels came out. You remember biodiesel was all the rage in around 2005 in around that time. Um, these didn't work for a lot of various reasons. Um, um, they never really quite went away. Um, they're not gone. They're actually still around. Natural gas is still with us. Uh, biodiesel to a very limited. Um, they really realize that that, um, that's, that uh, harvesting crops for diesel was actually causing more damage 
you see it because it's much better optical for food than it is control for, for fuel. Um, but they're still around. Uh, in fact, in some ways, they may be making a comeback. Um, and I've been hearing more and more about this, this talk. And the reason is, is because it is recognized that even with the accelerated growth of EVs, with the mandates, even at that 2035 point, uh, only 50% of the cars on the road will be electric. There will still be 50% of those running on, um, on petroleum. And so the thinking is, well, let's bring back more natural gas. Let's start incenting those things. Um, because yes, eventually electric vehicles in 30, 40 years, everything will be electric. Um, but let's wean ourselves off as much as, as, as possible. And maybe natural gas and propane can provide some alternatives. So but, it's, still, it's still around. Yeah, but um, as far as EVs just being a fad, none of those were, well, I guess in some, you could make an argument that they were a fad, but they probably fizzled out for other yeah. reasons. That were, well, they were just the popular thing of the day. That there, there was, so maybe 10 years ago, you could make that comment when they were just in their infancy. Um, I, uh, a few people had a vision, certainly someone like Elon Musk had a vision with EVs um, well before it caught the attention of, of anyone in government or, or other manufacturers. He certainly wouldn't have subscribed to that. And that's generally what it takes. It's just somebody with a vision driving it. I don't think you can say that now. There's just too much momentum behind this. Um, not only does it just have the support of the government, um, look at what manufacturers are doing now. Um, there's not one manufacturer, unless they're very specialized in a particular vehicle, that is not opening up their production lines to, to electric. Um, they just, they are not a fad. It's gonna take maybe a while to get there, um, but to say it is a fad. And then what's the alternative then? If there was something else underneath, if you could say, well, nuclear power is going to be the way, um, and that's gonna replace EVs, uh, I don't see that happening. Uh, there's some talk of hydrogen, uh, and even Toyota is working on an internal combustion engine that utilizes hydrogen. But these are so experimental. Um, there's just nothing coming in underneath. Uh, we have a climate crisis. Um, that's, that's undisputable, right? The degree to which that, is it 12 years or is it 100 years? I, I don't know. Um, but, but most people agree that there is a crisis and we need to solve this. And EVs are uh, a way of solving it. I recently read uh, some report that said that I think it was around 65% of people surveyed actually said that they do intend to purchase an EV sometime in the not too distant future. It's, it's higher, it's, it's 80%. 80%. Yeah, that was a recent <laughs> Angus Reid poll. Uh, and they're at various levels. There are the early adopters. They're ready right now. Um, and then there's what you call the early majority. Um, and that's sort of where we're breaking into right now, uh, there's the late majority, and then there's the hardcore skeptics. And, the, and the, the skeptics, the people say, I will never buy one, uh, are, are fewer and far between. They're only about 20%. Now, the early, the early adopters, they've already come in. They, they have their vehicle. Um, the early majority, one of the biggest problems with them is finding the vehicles right now. Um, and, and, that, and that's really limiting the growth somewhat. But Mm-hmm. Here's one of the popular ones by the naysayers. Used EV batteries will all end up in landfill 
because they're not recyclable. Oh, completely false. They'll, they are not ending up in landfills, uh, and, uh, and won't. they're worth too much. Batteries are the most expensive component of a vehicle. Uh, so when recyclers get them, they, are, they have a high yield. Uh, there are concerns with much older batteries, and this can be a concern when, when battery chemistries change, uh, because it's rendering something that's 20 years obsolete. Um, and because cars have such a long life, a car made today, well, it doesn't mean that that technology is even going to be viable in 20 years. So, so there is some concerns with the older battery uh, chemistries. Um, they're not ending up in landfill, um, but we do need to sharpen up our recycling processes, uh, and there are challenges with that. Uh, and the government is responding. They're, there are uh, models such as extended producer responsibility programs, or there's other voluntary programs that manufacturers can engage in to take back those batteries. Um, but yeah, they're, they're not ending up in landfills at all. Yeah, and the industry is adapting. It's part in of the EV-friendly uh, auto recycler training does deal with this, and, what, and there know, how to properly store them. How to store them, and, and how to, uh, and, and they're responsible as well. Uh, industry is much more responsible environmentally than it was 30 years ago. BC was actually champions in the environmental responsibility. Uh, BC was one of the first in North America to come out and start regulating and licensing uh, automotive recyclers. Uh, and even if they had the choice now, and you asked, well, would, would you go back to what you were doing 30 years ago if they got rid of the regulation? No. They're, they're, they're just, it's, so, it's just in set in the... In their, uh, in their minds now. And there are, besides recycling, there's a second life uses well, for batteries. There's, there's industries there's, coming up that are they're making use of batteries for uh, repurposing them. Yeah. So there's still a, store energy, just not enough for an EV. Well, there's a high demand. Um, and it's probably in one of your questions about the second life battery. So um, when, you, when, when a recycler ends up with a battery, there's a number of things that they can do with it. And it depends on what, what the state of health of, of that battery is at that time. Uh, it could just be reused in another vehicle. If it's, if it's a newer battery and it's got a high state of health, it could just simply swap one out and replace it, just like you would any other part. There's the repair um, where a mechanic can, because, because a battery is made up of individual modules, and within each module there can be hundreds of cells. Well, maybe it's just one module that's bad. So all they have to do is swap out that one module. Um, and then the big thing, uh, and we'll probably touch on that, is the second life battery storage. There's probably, you probably have a question about that, so I won't go too much into that, but um, that's another use. And recycling is the very final last thing that you will do. So here's two questions that are similar. Uh, EVs are not better for the environment, they're actually worse. And the rising demand for electricity caused by EV proliferation will actually increase global pollution. Okay, those are two. Those are actually two really good questions, uh, and there is some truth in them. I'm, I'll have to break it. Let's just take the first one. Uh, EVs are uh, a polluter or worse. Like well, I what, think what, 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 they, what they allude to is that the production of them is more environmentally unfriendly. To offset, you know, which offsets what the gains are by the tailpipe emissions. I once read an article. This was quite a few years ago, yeah. that compared the overall environmental footprint of a Prius 
to a Hummer back when they used to build Hummers. <laughs> and they actually made the case that the Hummer was better for the environment because they didn't source the nickel and the nickel mines and then shipping the raw materials around it, you know, everything else that's involved in the manufacturing process. So I think that's where they're coming from. You know, yeah. they can't argue that the EV itself in its use is less environmentally friendly, but the production of it. Okay, so, yeah, so so that's, we have to unpack that. Um, and there is some truth to that, so I'll, I'll um, um, sort of steel man that argument a, a little bit. So some of it has to do with the standards of which we measure CO2 output, okay? And if you just, if you were just to put a box around a gas-powered and then an, a pure electric vehicle, just on that standard alone, the gas-powered is a, a greater polluter because you're just measuring what is coming out of that tailpipe, whatever gets contained in that box. And then the battery, there's no tailpipes. Hence, we call them zero emission, right? That doesn't mean that it doesn't have an environmental impact, and, and it does. Now, where that comes from is in the mining to make the battery, and in particular, lithium. And, and you touched on it. It's the lithium mining, it's the transport of all these materials, uh, everything that goes into manufacturing that battery. So an ICE vehicle right off the lot and its counterpart that's electric, um, the electric is going to have a higher CO2 if, if you consider everything, okay? But this is where you have to measure it in the long run. After three, four, five, or six years, this is where the zero emission now starts to exceed the ICE vehicle. And in the long run, it's better, much, much, much better for the environment. But it's also why it's important to get into the right kind of vehicle. Because we tend to overbuy, and some of this has to do with the range anxiety. We think we need higher battery capacity than what we really need. So if you really, if all you're really using that vehicle for is, well, I just, you know, my work is 10 minutes away and I use it to go back and forth to work, maybe take the kids to school and do some grocery shopping, you don't need um, uh, you, 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 you don't need something, well, you don't need a Hummer to do that. You can get by with just a little smart car or something like that, right? Uh, so it's an important that the consumer be educated and get in the right kind of vehicle so that we don't over-manufacture things. And that is, a, that, is a big, that is a big problem. But ultimately, they are, they are better for the environment. It also assumes as well that the energy being used to charge that battery uh, is coming from petroleum, coal, uh, you know, or, or gas or anything like that. If it's coming from renewables, then its environmental benefits are not right from production, but two years, three years right after that. So the green methods or the clean methods of producing the electricity, that was the other side of the question, was the amount of pollution um, created by producing enough electricity to charge EVs. That's, yeah, so what we have to do is switch off petroleum uh, to renewables. Um, we're fortunate in British Columbia here because we have an abundance of hydro. Uh, but as we move more into wind and solar, uh, and, and probably nuclear as well. Nuclear has a bad rap and a dirty name. 
Um, and there's a whole conversation and how much renewables we can actually do. But yes, if it if it's coming, if you're powering your vehicle from your from your home and you have solar panels, then that is much more environmentally beneficial. I actually saw a picture of a Tesla with a wind turbine mounted on the hood, self-charging. Okay, <laughs> that, that's that's interesting. Yeah, uh, that was also on social media. Probably not genuine. A wind turbine <laughs> attached. To, well, I, I've seen people ask about solar panels on cars as well, and and the the main problem with that, and they were ideas that were touted around the '80s. Remember the solar car and stuff. Oh yeah. Um, but it's just the area you need for a solar panel. Um, you know, it, it would take up a four-lane highway. Well, you know, maybe someday it would be because I mean, now they're getting much more uh, power out of a smaller solar panel. Everything uh, gets so everything gets everything smaller. gets better, smaller, more efficient, better, more. That's right. Production. Could be, could be. Um, you hinted about the mining of lithium. Yeah. And one of the common comments is that so there's not enough lithium in the world to manufacture all the batteries that we'd need to convert the fleet to electric vehicles. Well, with anything, yeah, there's a grain of truth in that. Just like there's a limited amount of oil, uh, you're going to eventually run out, right? Um, there's only so much lithium in the world that we can mine. Um, I think recent estimates are probably put us at current mining processes about 70 years from now. That's a long time, 70 years of our current uh, process of mining lithium. Uh, once that runs out, then you turn to the sea. Uh, and there is an abundance of lithium in the oceans, huge amounts. Getting it is a problem, but that used to be with oil. So, so, so remember in the, the crisis in the late 70s and the 80s, we were going to run out of oil in 20 years. Um, and that's because they were just drilling sort of that surface oil. They got much more sophisticated. They could drill much deeper and get into those hard to get areas. And it's going to be the same with lithium. But that's also assuming that lithium is going to be the, the material that we're going to be using in 30 years. Exactly. Not Lithium is, is a useful um, uh, material because its ability to um, release electrons, which of course uh, increases the voltage and circuit and all that stuff. There's other, there's other materials. They're looking at sodium, just plain salt, as a replacement for lithium now. And there's abundance of that in the world. So I don't really see that as a concern. There's one that I saw recently that I found interesting was uh, it, it, it suggested that uh, road taxes pay for road maintenance, or gas taxes. Mm -hmm. More specifically, so they said, imagine if all of a sudden all the vehicles were electric and nobody's buying gas anymore, the gas taxes that goes to maintain roads, where is the money going to come from to maintain roads? So, yeah, that's a real loaded question. Uh, first off, uh, if the government needs money, they're going to get it one way or the other. Um, they don't have to rely. They, there's a wealth of means that they can tap into your wealth and take take what they want. And I'm sure they they will. Um, and also road also road maintenance. Well, who's doing that? Is that federal? Um, like highway construction? Is it provincial? Uh, is it municipal? You know, fixing potholes. Um, that's all road construction. So there's that's going on at various levels. Uh, and various levels of taxation as well. 
There's also different kinds of taxes on your gas as well. It, it's not just one tax. There's GST, there's PST, there's the carbon tax, um, there's other taxes, there's a whole slew of it. So it's not just one tax. Uh, and they'll just switch if once that, once that pool dries up, they'll find another. They always do. Mm, they always do, yeah. <laughs> They're not going to stop government from taxing you. Where's the money going to come from? <laughs> right here in your pocket. Um, another big one that you hear a lot, the electrical grid cannot handle the demand for require, uh, required to charge EVs. Yeah. So there's a lot of assumptions there in that one. Yeah, so let's let's try to give this some validity because uh, I don't want to just dismiss these comments. So it assumes it's making an assumption. Uh, let's say that everyone in the world, if we could snap our fingers, everyone, every car in the world, I think there's about a billion cars in the world, uh, were to be electric. And that all those cars, everyone goes home at 5.30 and plugs it into their DC fast charger. Uh, yeah, that's going to cause obviously a drain on an entire system and you're going to get blackouts. So would it be if everyone went home and turned on their electric dryer or their we range saw that, to cook dinner? We, we saw that in Air California. conditioning in the hot, you know, in the hot weather causing brownouts. So we just saw we that already in have California. demands yeah. on our system. Right? Yeah, we, we just saw that. It, it, that doesn't stop technology. So, so when air conditioning came out, I think it was in the late 40s, 50s, when air conditioning, nobody talked about, um, oh, it's going to cause the grid to collapse. That, 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 never, that never happened. So, so first off, that scenario is unlikely. So it's going to be slow and gradual that we're going to, more and more people will switch to, to EVs. So uh, we have to increase our total output. And we do, we're doing so at about 4% a year. So if you measure what the output was in 1960 to what it is now, uh, it's probably increased about 4% a year, right? So we're producing much more electricity to meet all those demands. And we're just finding new and innovative ways of doing that. Now, to, it has been estimated to that um, once we hit that, that um, 100% all electric vehicles, no gas on the road, um, that will probably mean an increase of about 30% of the total hour uh, um, energy output that we will need. Um, so at 4% a year, it's not going to take that long to hit the 30%. And that's probably uh, will exceed the actual growth of EVs. And then the, this, the, there's a second component to that as well, and this gets back into the battery storage. So it's often a case uh, that you you can produce a lots of electricity at certain peak periods of time. Um, and what do you do with that excess electricity? Well, this is where the secondary battery storage comes in. And so that's going to even out the grid. So there's, there's, there's not, there won't be those uh, high demands placed on, um, by plugging in your, your EV overnight. That's going to collapse the system, right? Because if, if the energy is, if it's from renewables, if the sun's not shining or the wind's not blowing, it relies on the backup battery storage. And that's why, that's why batteries are not going to end up in landfills, right? Because we can use them, remanufacture them, and then every household could have their backup battery storage, which is very, very likely. It's already happening. We're already seeing that. Tesla's invested heavily into their, into their batteries, and other companies are starting to come up. Yeah, and the other part of the assumptions that are being made is that everyone's going home and 
charging their vehicles at the same time. Um, most vehicles or most uh, drivers, you know, drive less than 50 kilometers a day. And, you know, the capacity of the average battery, let's say, is 200 kilometers. So you're not going to have to charge your vehicle every single day. You don't gas up your car if you have an ICE vehicle every day. When you fill up the tank, you're usually good for, you know, depending on how far you drive, but say you use that 50 kilometers a day benchmark, you're going to get almost a week out of it, if not more. Yeah. So, you know, people will be coming home and they might not need to charge their, their vehicle, um, you know, at that particular, all at the same time, so, and every day. So another common one is that EVs are dangerous because the batteries overheat and catch fire. Well, the, they can. So the batteries can overheat and they can cause fire. That that statement is is true, um, but but certainly no more than gas engines. In fact, considerably less. They're, in fact, they're quite a bit safer than than gas uh, than gasoline engines, uh, which can ignite at a much higher higher rate. Uh, then to say they're dangerous, well, fire in general. Any fire can be dangerous, um, but you're probably at a greater risk in driving your gas car uh, of that catching fire than you are uh, of an EV. And EVs have a battery management system that include, includes regulating the, their temperatures. Yeah, so, so the they can come equipped. They're, they're 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 all computer controlled, um, and they they monitor you know whether it's getting too hot or getting too cold. Um, Accidents do happen. They 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 don't explode. So a gasoline engine can explode on impact. You remember the old Pintos, right? If you get rear-ended, that was always a big scare, especially if you had a Pinto. I think I remember having a Pinto. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's all and you live to tell about. us about it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I, yeah, and they, they even those were rare, but they recalled a bunch. Uh, and and they had had problems with with uh, certain batteries, like with the Chevy Bolt. Um, there was a problem in with the individual cells, or the tab, uh, that was, I think it was interfering with the electrical symbol. And it was a simple fix. They just had to recall them all back and then remanufacture the batteries. Um, so there's always an element of risk, but, but far less, far less risk than with a gas engine. Um, and there's also usually telltale signs because they just don't burst into flames. There's generally, it starts off with smoke, it will be emitted, a hissing sound or anything like that. Uh, and if you are aware of that, uh, pull over, call the fire department immediately. Mm -hmm. So, so when these when we do hear of these EV battery fires, it's uh, first of all rare, and uh, secondly, we're hearing about it because it's sensationalism in the media. It you know, news. it's just not news if an ICE vehicle catches fire because they do. <laughs> no, they do every day. But no, you don't. You don't hear about. It. You don't read about it in the paper. You don't see it on Facebook because it's just not newsworthy. But if a Tesla catches fire, yeah, it's going to hit the front page. Yeah, because they're going to say, "Hey, see, there's proof." That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another common uh, misconception, or well, maybe there's some validity in it, is that e uh, EVs are more expensive than ICE vehicles. Now, that may be true if you're looking at just the price tag of a EV and a very similar model, mm -hmm. um, you know, from the same manufacturer, maybe. Uh, yeah, the uh, EV is probably going to be a little more expensive. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the bigger picture, yeah, so the first thing is when you say something's expensive, um, that's always relative to what your pocketbook is, isn't it? You can either afford it or you can't. Um, and then 
total cost of ownership is really, it's one factor, but is not the factor. If, if all we did was look at cost, we would all be driving 90 Honda Civics, wouldn't we? <laughs> right, but, but there's so many other factors that go into our purchase decision. So the upfront cost right now is, as you compare to, to a, a similar like-kind model, is more expensive, and that's just due to the, the production costs. The manufacturers are opening their production lines, it's economies of scale, they can't make as many, uh, and this is why we have the government subsidies now to, to, to bring them down. Now, in total costs, though, and if you just want to look at the cost, the, the total cost of ownership is actually considerably less for an EV. The upfront cost is more, but even if you calculate in with the depreciation and maintenance, um, and you look at over uh, a span of a few years, um, that EV is going to be considerably cheaper. And they've done studies with this. So they've, they've taken two like-kind models, one pure EV, another gas-powered, and they took it over a span of eight years, measured, well, what has been the cost, total cost to drive that vehicle, and the EVs all came out ahead. Now, it didn't go beyond eight years. It didn't take it to the 20-year mark or anything like that, but we could probably assume that, that similar trajectory. Well, that was one of the other questions was the, uh, that EVs are more expensive to repair. And if you look at each individual repair bill, there may be some validity there because the parts may be a little more expensive. It depends on what they are. But the basic repairs and maintenance are pretty much the same. They have brakes. They have tires. You know, the, the maintenance is pretty much the same as a, as a uh, ICE vehicle. But if one of the electrical system components fails, yeah, they can be more expensive. Or, well, if you have to the replace part, the battery, of course. Yeah, I mean, the parts are um, the, the parts are just going to be naturally a little more expensive. Again, it comes down to economies of scale. And there are some horror stories, like with the, the batteries, for instance, uh, where, you know, somebody posts a, a $22,000 bill of a battery for, for a Tesla. Um, these are the outliers. Again, they're very rare. Tesla batteries are some of the best batteries in the world, and they can last up to about 20 years. Or at least projected, they haven't even been around for, for that long. Um, so, and they're they still require maintenance. It's it's uh, it's a misconception that well you never have to take it into a shop. That's false. You actually have to be on top of it. But they don't require regular oil changes and things like that. So you have a lot of reduced expenses with that. So overall, they're they're just cheaper to maintain. What about the argument that a lot of people will be put out of work if EVs proliferate? That's a good. That is a good question. Um, every new technology have winners and losers. Some people are going to lose, and but you're also going to create a lot of jobs as well. And this is this technology is no different. Uh, and in the short term, and in some industries, it could actually create uh, create more jobs. And here's why: is we have two. Currently, we have two technological streams that's in production. You have your traditional gas-powered vehicles that are still being manufactured and, and um, given a lifespan of a, you know, 12 years per vehicle. They're going to be around for, for a considerable amount of time. And then we have EVs and the follow-up, which is automation. And that's a completely different beast. Um, and they require different skill sets and different training. So is that job going to split into two? So you actually created, you now have two jobs, not one, right? So it splits into two streams, um, which is probably more likely rather than taking that traditional mechanic and thinking that you're going to retrain him and he's going to become your all-purpose guy. 
Uh, and even in small shops, you're seeing uh, if they have a staff of four or five, you have that one tech because he's the EV specialist because he's been specially trained, right? So in, so in a sense, it's going to, uh, in the short term, anyways, create more jobs because there's always a fear of automation in every industry is it's going to eliminate some jobs, but it creates other jobs. Well, there was a related question about, you know, the, if you buy an EV, you're not going to be able to take it to your traditional local uh, garage that you may be uh, familiar with because uh, they won't know how to fix it. But that is why the EV-friendly training program uh, exists, right? It, it, it is. One of our mission is to, to provide the tools, resources, and the training out to a lot of these independent shops because they're needed uh, We and we need them. Um, but they've been operating under an infrastructure that's taken 100 years to build. Uh, and it wasn't always like that. Um, there were no mechanics. There were no mechanical shops in the early 20th century. Uh, uh, people used to get their cars fixed at bicycle shops. And that's where you took your car. And then we just started to see the proliferation of gas stations. And the gas station was where you went to not just fill up on gas, but to get your car repaired. Um, they would have a tow truck, and they would tow your car there. Um, they would bang out the dents, and they would even recycle. So it was your one stop for a shop. And then that just evolved. The technology became more specialized, and it grew from there. Um, well, now we have a new technology, uh, and places are going to have to adapt. Otherwise, they're just they're not going to be around. Related to the concerns around range anxiety, a lot of people claim that there's not enough charging stations and that the time that it takes to charge an EV is way longer than it takes to fill up with gas uh, in an ICE vehicle. One of your former guests uh, was on and, and he talked about that, said that people often ask him how long it takes him to charge his EV and he says, oh, about 15 seconds. And then he explains, it's, well, I just have to pull up into the garage and plug it in and that's it, I'm done which is a lot shorter than the time it takes to stand at the gas pump with your that hand on the trigger of the nozzle. Very, very true for him because he owns a house and he has a garage and he has a luxury that he can just pull in and charge his vehicle overnight. Uh, and a lot of people don't have that. They're parking on the street. They're in a uh, condo complex that is not outfitted with chargers. Uh, and so for them, um, it may take longer. Um, there, it's getting much quicker. To fill up your car with gas is, what is it, five minutes? I mean, you, you, you pull up, you go in, you prepay, and you do whatever quick shopping you need, and then five minutes to fill up your tank, and you're out. It's very, it's very convenient. Um, but the charging is getting much more convenient. It's going to, that kind of charging will take a little bit of a lifestyle change. Um, uh, people report that you know, it's not a big deal. Uh, and places are adapting. They're starting to put up coffee shops or white spots or restaurants, right? So you just have to plan things out a little better. Uh, workplaces are now outfitting their um, for their staff parking with chargers, whether it's just a level two or even in some cases DC fast charging. So that's just like charging at home. You drive it to work. You plug it in. At the end of the day, you've got a fully charged car and so on. And so we're seeing a lot more of that. So it, the con it'll just become more and more convenient uh, as, we, as we progress. Uh, one of the comments is that if you do have an EV fire, you can forget about trying to put it out with water. You have to use a special fire extinguisher uh, and that the batteries burn at a much higher temperature. Uh, so 
that is false. Um, there is no special EV battery extinguisher. It's just the extinguisher that you use, I believe, is a, a Class B. Um, but it's water. That's what puts out an EV fire, and it's copious amounts. It, I think it takes an estimated 10,000 liters to fully extinguish that, that fire. And it can burst into flames again as well after that. There's also uh, a new technology called fire blankets. And it's deployed by fire departments that, that have them. They're quite expensive. But it's just like a blanket. You can just drape it over a burning uh, EV vehicle. And within 30 seconds, that flame is completely extinguished. So no foam or no special extinguisher. And if your car happens to catch fire, um, don't bring out the garden hose or do any of that. Just yeah. call the fire department yeah. and stay away. Stay away and call the fire department. Yeah. Uh, that's why we have insurance on here. And that's why we have insurance, <laughs> yeah. Uh, here's one that kind of caught me a little by surprise, that claiming that EVs are too heavy. And I guess they're relating to the fact that the batteries are heavy, but then again, they don't have the engine or transmission. So, you know, and the way they're positioned, they lower the center of gravity. So there are actually some advantages uh, in the fact, you know, how, how the vehicles are laid out. So what do you say to that? I guess maybe they're thinking that, you know, because of the weight of the battery, it requires more energy to, uh, you know, to propel the vehicle, which reduces the range. So it's kind of related to what we were already talking about, but about vehicle weight. What do you say to that? Well, so it's true that they're heavier, and that has to do with the battery. So I, I'd probably say just off the bat, that's probably at this point in time more of a concern for the commercial usage of them. Um, and one of the reasons for that is the weight caps that are on these big rigs, tractor trailers. Uh, I think in the U.S. it's 80,000. It can't exceed 80,000 pounds. I don't know what the equivalent is in Canada, but probably probably the same. And so that is true um, because they go much longer ranges and are operating, you know, sometimes 24-7. They need much bigger batteries. That's going to um, increase their weight, which means, well, they have to take less cargo. So, it, but they're working on it. Tesla is working on it. Uh, and there's some other upstart companies uh, trying to um, increase the efficiency, the rolling resistance, um, drag, things like that that they're working on. So they'll eventually get there. And then in terms of passenger vehicles, uh, you're right. Yeah, it all has to do with energy density. Um, so the a gallon of gasoline is the equivalent to 33.7 kilowatt hours, which is, I think, around the equivalent of some of the early LEAF batteries. And um, that that's a very, a gasoline is a very efficient um, uh, for energy density, because if you run out of gas, you take the jerry can and you walk down to the gas station and fill it up and it's not that heavy um, you couldn't do that with your Nissan Leaf battery take it out and it's a 600 pound battery and drag it down um, but the batteries are getting much more efficient because they're getting much more energy dense and they get smaller and more efficient and they can pack more power in them I mean it's no different than it's no different than any other technology things get smaller don't they we've seen this time and time and time again um, I'm the thinking, brick cell phone. Yeah, I'm thinking <laughs> the old cell phones, the bricks, and um, and they were probably what 90% battery to begin with, and they were pretty heavy. They were called brick for a reason because you yeah. drop them or chuck them, and they were they weighed about as much as a brick, and they weighed <laughs> as much too. They looked pretty cool in the day, didn't they? I mean, when you, you had a so. brick, 
Well, maybe <laughs> if, if you saw somebody with a brick now, it, <laughs> you might laugh. But that that got down to what we have now. Uh, batteries, uh, EV batteries are going to be no different. So they're just going to weigh less. Plus, there's also to get the weight down. There's a lot of other materials, lightweight materials like carbon fiber, aluminum that uh, manufacturers are switching to. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, here's one that we hear about a lot in Canada in particular, and that is uh, how EV batteries uh, run and how efficient they are in colder weather. So, you know, the claim that uh, you will get less range and less power out of your battery when we're in the throes of winter. But that's kind of true of ICE vehicles too, isn't it? Because when you have reduced daylight sure. hours and it's colder out, you're going to use your lights, your heater, your wipers, and all that kind of stuff. So is it really that much different with an electric vehicle? Um, so there's, there is truth to that. Um, and yes, in, in extreme cold weather, everything slows down. People slow down. <laughs> you don't move as fast when you're cold. What do you do? You dress warmly. And just like in extreme heat, you shed clothing. And batteries are no different. They have battery management systems. They have heaters. And they also have... Uh, coolers uh, what extreme cold weather will cause uh, is a drain to heat the cabin you say well that's true of ice vehicles yes it is but the heat but that's wasted energy that you're using to heat the cabin right um, whereas with EVs it's a direct draw from the battery so there are are things you can do there's heat pumps that you can purchase a lot of a lot of EVs now just come equipped with that but they did better distribute the heat um, dress warmly, um, use the heat, seat warmers instead of the heater. Um, but it can be, yeah, I, I think it's up to about an extreme cold, you can get a 40, up to a 40% reduction in efficiency. So that it, it is a factor, um, but it's just like anything. I mean, you just have to work around it. And again, they're getting better and better and better. And, and as we can be able to, as batteries get more energy dense, they'll just overcome those obstacles. The last one that we have here, and I don't really think this relates to EVs, although the person commenting uh, was making it relate to EVs, and that is the information, the data that is collected by today's modern cars. Uh, they can track your movements and your whereabouts and your driving habits and, and a bunch of other things. Um, so this is probably not specific to EVs, but with modern vehicle technology, the amount of information that it collects. Uh, it you know, it's almost like they look at it, obviously, as like it's spying on you. Yeah, it's a little conspiratory. I mean, who's spying on you? So Google right now, just your cell phone, uh, if, if you enable it um, on your maps, it tracks everywhere you go, every restaurant or store or how long you've spent somewhere. Um, Google knows that. I don't know where that information goes loaded well, on some computer obviously goes to facebook because a moment later you'll see an ad for that yeah, very product you know it it, it does i don't yeah. think you have to actually go there you could just be talking about it with somebody in the next yeah you know you, there's this identity <laughs> of you on some facebook google algorithm so they already that technology is already there and I, as cars get more sophisticated and as they will and electric is sort of the first wave of that they just start to become mobile cell phones so it does bring up an interesting point. I, I don't. I don't think there's somebody sitting in a room who's really interested in Renee Young and wants to know his every movement. I mean, um, they probably just want to sell you products. So, uh, but uh, but it does raise some very interesting questions about 
who owns that information, right? And who has the right to it? Um, and that is a whole other topic. It also has some concerns as well, is um, if you control that, can you erase all that information? It's very important when, when you sell a car or if it comes right off that you have the ability, no different than your cell phone, you know, you can just wipe it clean. Right. Um, and it's, we already see it happening. A car gets into an accident um, that, we, so we've had cases where, and this is with Tesla, uh, Tesla gets into an accident, it immediately wires that information to Tesla and it can be actually a real problem getting it. Authorities have had problems getting that information from Tesla because they need to investigate the accident. There was a recent case in BC just a few years ago. Tesla refused. They wouldn't relinquish that information. I think they eventually did. Uh, so it's being discussed. It's in its right to repair is one aspect of that. It's before, um, it's before government right now. There's a private members bill. Uh, it's, it's a big topic. But it's not, I just don't see it as a conspiratory. Well, thank you very much for your insight into these concerns, uh, Ken. It's been very enlightening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to check out the rest of the EV Friendly podcast series. Uh, it's available on YouTube. And if you don't have time to watch the uh, entire video version, there's also an audio version that you can take with you called EV Friendly on the Go. It's available on Spotify and other places where you might download your podcasts. So thank you for watching. Be sure to like and share if you do enjoy this series, and we'll see you next time on EV Friendly.